Hello again, this is Heavy Wireless, a podcast as part of the Packet Pushers podcast family. My name is Keith Parsons, and today's topic is ham radio and Wi-Fi. And I have with me two people who are both friends and Wi-Fi people and ham radio people, and I thought they'd be the great people to have on this topic specifically on ham radio. Glenn Kate, introduce yourself for a second. Hey, thanks, Keith, for inviting me here to the podcast. Uh, Glenn Kate, I'm a, a Wi-Fi uh, engineer uh, with a large power utility here in the United States and also ham radio operator. Uh, my call sign is November 4, Golf Romeo Charlie, in for GRC, and I'm um, extra class. Great. Thanks, Lee. Hi, Keith and Glenn. I'm Lee Bedman. Get the call sign right out of the way, KI2K, also extra class. I've been doing that for a while. I work for a large private university on the wireless side, and uh, nice to be on this version of the podcast. I've had the pleasure of talking with the heavy network guys in the past, and it's really nice to be able to do this side of it too. Wonderful. Well, let's just uh, jump right in with the topic at hand. And Glenn, can you just tell us how you personally got involved in ham radio a long time ago? Sure. Wow. This is this will go back. So I'll even list a date here, Keith. 1975, graduate from high school. I know dinosaurs ruled the earth back then. Um, but I had a friend in my electronics class I took in high school. He said, yeah, I was talking to Europe on my radio. I go, you were? What, what were you doing? He said, oh, I use Morse code. And I talked to uh, Germany or Italy or whatever. I said, well, how do you do that? So he started talking to me about it and invited me to a, a boys club amateur radio class that was in Pinellas Park, Florida, just a little north of my home here in St. Petersburg. I went there, saw an operator, looked at what they were doing, and the bug bit me, Keith. I said, I love this stuff. So studied for the exam, bought my first radio and put up an antenna, and sure enough, I was talking with Morse code around the world, and that was just so much fun. Lots of other things involved as well, but that's how I got started in uh, in ham radio. And before we go to, to Lee, you want to then transition, Glenn, from how did you get installed involved in Wi-Fi? Okay, well, that's, that's another uh, story as well. So I was working for the power utility. I uh, was doing um, workstation support, actually, you know, putting PCs together and putting the images on them and distributing them to users. And one day, someone walked down my desk. I said, hey, I've got something for you. So what is it? It was a PCMCIA wireless card. I go, what do you do with this thing? He said, well, plug it in and you can talk wireless to these things we put up in the, in the, on the ceiling called access points. So bug number two bit me. I love this. I said, this is almost like amateur radio for the computer and because you could talk wirelessly and uh, from then on just studied more and more through the whole CWNP regimen and uh, more and more involved and so got involved in uh, in Wi-Fi that way and uh, I just just love it the technology and, and just have a passion for that. Great Lee how about how's your Wi-Fi and ham radio how close are they together in in your life and career? They have been much closer than they are um, right at the current moment, but I find ham to be a, I find radio to be something that kind of ebbs and flows. You're really into it for a while, and then, you know, you kind of have your lows, and right now, with our move to another state, I'm kind of in a low, but slowly getting back to it. If you go way back one, just to give you the my quick roots, as a kid, my dad was um, 
big into CB and scanners, and there was always something, even shortwave, there's always something around the house that was kind of cool, but I didn't think all that much about it. Uh, spent a good while in the Air Force doing something called electronic warfare, which is kind of laying waste to everything <laughs> that we now use today. That's the short version of that. When I got out of the Air Force, I kind of missed all things uh, RF. I mean, I was deep into it just in another uh, way. And I started thinking, you know, how do I how do I get back to that, which I lost when I left the Air Force? And that kind of took me to ham radio and scanners and shortwave and long wave beacons and all kinds of crazy uh, radio stuff. Um, you know, we talk about ham radio, but the radio hobbies, there's quite a bit to that beyond just ham, although ham is very much in that, um, you know, absolutely in that bullseye of different radio things. Um, you know, so I'm big into that. All of a sudden, Wi-Fi came along. It came to the same place I work now. And uh, I remember the boss at the time saying, eh, it looks like this is going to take off and you seem to know stuff about radio. Do you want to you wanna give it a go? Yeah, sure. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so I started off with the four APs that were donated to us. Four became 50, 50 became 200. You know, fast forward and, you know, Got almost 5,000 APs that have, you know, turned over five or six generations now. And uh, the two of them have absolutely been symbiotic for principles and, you know, foundational knowledge and all of that. There's there's absolutely no denying that, you know, all the radio stuff uh, of which ham was a huge part also just kind of made Wi-Fi very much a natural fit. So for, for people who were not starting in ham and they want to start in, they started in Wi-Fi, just give us a, a, a rundown, Glenn, of uh, what you'd recommend if somebody's a Wi-Fi guy and they want to switch over and, and look into ham, where might they start? Well, um, one of the first things uh, I know reversing that, Keith, when I was a ham operator first and then started studying uh, Wi-Fi, I'm thinking, the RF and the antenna principles, SWR, things of that nature, polarization of antennas, is that this is just like second nature for someone who's a ham radio operator. So I would say if someone's uh, into Wi-Fi and would like to get into ham radio, you'll already have a leg up, if you will. You'll know some of that information already, probably the whole shoot and match of antennas and how SWR affects antenna propagation, things of that nature. But there's a, there's a pretty good website to start out with, the American Radio Relay League, ARRL.org. They are the, so the premier group that works with um, amateur radio operators and non-amateur radio operators as well to um, talk about the hobby, talk about uh, things you can do with the radio service. And uh, it's just a, a lot of uh, good information on ARRL.org. So I would go out there, poke around a little bit, see what you have. Um, one thing, if someone was interested in getting started in amateur radio, probably the first step would be getting your technician class license. There are three license grades in U.S. Um, uh, amateur radio uh, service. The first is the technician. The next is the general. And then the third is the extra. Technician is relatively easy to study for. You, you buy one of the textbooks, kind of read through it, take the exam, and you can <laughs> you can get on the radio pretty inexpensively, Keith, for about $25, and you can go from there. Let's, let's back up historically. And technician wasn't your first license. You no. mentioned 
you needed Morse code originally. And when I was your age, when you first started, I'm not quite as old, but I'm, I'm it's, it was in the seventies when I was in high school and that had the same experience. Somebody in an electronic class mentioned it and they said code. And I went, well, I can learn that. And I couldn't, I, I well, I just didn't focus enough on it. They didn't have the, the feedback. So I was actually afraid of the whole radio thing because there was that code requirement. Like in Boy Scouts, we did something and I could do code like it one word every five minutes or something. It was like really, really slow. Is there still a code requirement for those licenses? No, the SEC in the U.S. dropped Morse code requirement, oh my goodness, over 10 years ago. And so Morse code is still an operating um, protocol, but it is no longer a requirement. So if anyone says anything about Morse code, it's because I like it, you know, as opposed to it's a requirement. So that is no longer required as uh, to get to get your amateur radio license. Okay. Lee, were you a code guy originally? Uh, I was not a code guy originally, although when I got my extra, the requirement, I believe, was still five words per minute. So it was on its way out. They lowered it a few times, uh, but I did have to do five words a minute. And, you know, like you, I I found it to be daunting, uh, but I got through it. And I was very proud of the fact that, you know, I did get my extra when there was still some code requirement. But, you know, as Glenn said right now, all of that's been waived. Uh, Morse code is still very much active. You'll hear a lot of it out there. And I know people who have gotten their licenses that, you know, they say they still want to do code just because to them, they'd be okay if it was still a requirement. It it interests them. It's very, very efficient. You know, a lot of advantages to using it, maybe not so much just generically knowing it, although it is a kind of a historical curiosity and there's some romance attached to it in that regard but it's a very efficient means of communication so uh, still very popular so it's kind of like bbsk (laughs) it works you know a little slow you mentioned certification so uh there is a technician class general class expert class what's the um what's the process to become certified using a wi-fi term in the ham radio space right now the uh, tiers if you will are technician general and extra uh, i think it's 10 15 bucks it's been so long since i've tested very inexpensive uh, you're you're going to want the current study guide uh, there's lots of old ones out there but you want a current study guide for the current version of the exam do some studying endless free practice tests online that are the actual exam questions. Um, that is kind of unique so it, for us. I mean, it couldn't it, be. It'd be like Cisco <laughs> saying, here, I'll give you all the test questions for your CCNA in advance. Yeah, it couldn't be easier in that regard. And, um, you know, call it brute memorization of exam questions or call it learning, whatever, whatever you call it. But then when you're ready to uh, take your technician exam, um, you find yourself a, a local uh, testing volunteer examiner group, usually at a local radio club. All of this will be easily found online. Go sit for the exam. Um, you know, assuming that you pass within a week or two, you'll have a call sign and uh, off you go. Good. Did I miss anything, Glenn? Let me. Uh... <laughs> I you caught it all early. I would just say. Keith, you probably think, well, how does a person get started? So I'm thinking, how does a person get started? 
I'm a member of the St. Pete Amateur Radio Club. We call it SPARC, S-P-A-R-C. And it's got 50 to 100 members, and we meet once a month. And uh, that club has a lot of what we call mentors, but in amateur radio language, we call them Elmers. So there's Elmers there who would love to help a new ham get started. And uh, you can, again, find a club in your area. Go out to awrl.org, look for your state, find Amateur Radio Club, and you can find a club in your area, unless you live in the middle of Montana or something like that. Nothing against those who live in Montana. But uh, that would be a, a great way to also get started. Find someone there. And there are no silly or stupid questions for amateur radio operators. And so go out there, have some fun, meet some people, and uh, they can help you get started with license. Well, thanks. That's a good way to get started. I, I started years ago. There was a local club who had a come in and study all morning and we'll give you the test in the afternoon. And I, I took one Saturday and six hours later I was certified. It was like, whoa, oh, I, I can do that. Then you get a radio, then you start talking. Well, let's now kind of transition and talk about what kind of things can you do once you once you have your license. So basically rules, before you have your license, you can't use these frequencies, these radios. Uh, you can buy them, but you're not supposed to use them. After you get your license and uh, maybe also talk about different licenses, different frequencies, what are the things you do with your radios? Oh, wow. What, where does it stop? Um, there's so many things you could do. I'll just throw out some things. There's digital communications. There's Morse code. There's single sideband voice. Um, you can talk to satellites through your repeater. That's always a lot of fun to do. There's 30 to 50 amateur satellites up in the air. And uh, it's neat how you can talk into satellite, talk to someone halfway across the U.S. through satellite communication. Um, I'm a fan of what they call a digital mode, Keith, called FT8. Uh, I just love this mode. It uh, transmits every 15 seconds, actually 12.63 seconds of transmission time. And then uh, it will decode. That's those signals. And I've talked pretty much around the world, China, Indonesia, uh, Antarctica through FT8 methodology. And it's, I, I just love FT8. It's kind of like uh, Wi-Fi for the ham radio bands. And so that's one of my favorite modes. And I know, Keith, you can probably add a few things I missed there. Is it kind of like SMS? That it's it's text, so you're texting it, it, someone it in is. Antarctica and they text back. But it's yes, using... it's actually it's a text mode, and it, but it's a very short. It gives that person's call sign, that person's grid square. As you know, the Earth is composed of what we call grid squares, um, and it shows that individual's grid square. And that person's signal report, by the way, is in dB. It's not in signal strength. It's in dB, so it'd be negative thirteen or negative seventeen dB. And then that person will sign usually 73, and 73 is the common amateur radio um, farewell or signing off um, type of uh, communication. And so, Lee, I probably missed a few. So what modes did I uh, leave out? Oh, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. People are into something called meteor scatter. There's moon bounce. You can throw signals off the International Space Station. I mean, there's just all kinds of crazy stuff you can do in space. One of my favorite things way back when, um, when my circumstances were different, were the drive time local two meter, uh, you know, drive to work, takes me a half hour to get there in that half hour, talk to fascinating people, talk to people you would never want to talk to if they weren't on the radio because they're just horrible, <laughs> horribly boring. I mean, it just, the variety is, you know, all over the place from high tech to very, uh, pedestrian, it's all in there. Um, you know, Glenn talked a little bit about the digital stuff. 
as a technologist, that's where I find my main fascination these days, the ability to integrate radio with IP backbones, the ability to hear these just arcane little beeps and chirps and uh, figure out what they are, um, do weird stuff like receiving weather faxes that are being transmitted to ships out on the high seas and being able to decode them. Anybody can do that. You don't need a ham radio license, but it all kind of blends together. Just the just the uh, crazy, ridiculous range of things there are to do, whether you're actively uh, talking and being a part of it all, or whether you're just kind of, you know, holding your thumb up into the air and sampling the radio environment. It's just an endless, endless range of activities that are pretty neat. What, what got me interested was, and probably this was because of the, the local group that I attended, they're into helping emergencies or just the local community do things. So if there's a parade, they're using ham radio operators to help do flow control or, a, you know, a hundred mile bike race. They use ham radio operators to have check-in points because we can use our radios with our frequencies that no one else can access because they don't have a license. And what I enjoyed about it, one, you get for fireworks, you get to sit like right under the fireworks but, but your your job is there to, in case there was a fire, you can, you know, relay information to the fire department or something. But what I enjoyed was learning for emergencies, whether it be national or regional, there are, there's a lot of protocols that are already done in place that kind of mix both modes. You're, you're on site and you're using your radio to communicate back to some central net. But because it's a lot of people there and it's in an emergency, we use a predetermined uh, template that if you want to make a specific report that there's a template. So if you found a lost child, you could call in and ask permission to talk very much like Wi-Fi. Only one person at a time can talk. So it has to have a little control and, and we call it net control inside that group. But if we're using digital, you can fill out all the information on your iPhone or an iPad and then use it to transmit it over a ham radio frequency to another ham radio operator. And they're on the receiving end and they just get the text already in the format that the local police or fire department needs. So I found that's, that's kind of what I use it for. I'm looking in Glenn's background and you have like world maps up. So you like to talk further than just, I'm a local guy. I like to talk locally. How far away have you talked with yours, Glenn? Yeah. Well, uh, and Keith, I'm a, I'm, I just love what we call DX, which is a abbreviation for distance. And so um, I love to work different countries around the world. Just worked yesterday, South Sudan. There's not so, a lot of amateur radio operators in that country. I'll, I'll just stop you for a second. You used a ham term. You like to work it. What does... You said you work, <laughs> work. Sudan. <laughs> there you go. You didn't There's go to Sudan radio. to work. What does, <laughs> what does that term work mean? Yeah, good question, Keith. Yeah, work means you've had a conversation, or as we often say in amateur radio license, we use a lot of Q signals. So that is a QSO, which means a conversation or a contact. And so I had a QSO or a, a conversation with a station in South Sudan. And so that is a new country for me. A country is a political entity. And there's 300 some in the world. They're not all geographic countries like the country of Italy, but you know Italy has a few other places around the world, not just the uh, the country of Italy itself. 
And uh, so that's what I love to do. Um, how far have I worked? Um, like I said, China, Indonesia, Antarctica. Um, there was just a, what we call a de-expedition. So that's a place, a bunch of people put a lot of radios and antennas and stuff together. And they want to go to different islands. And there's a small island off the coast of Antarctica. It's the most uninhabited um, island in the world, remote uninhabited islands called Bouvet Island. And uh, the expedition just finished there just a few weeks ago. I heard them. I couldn't work them. But I had some friends in my ham radio club who did. And so they have a new country. Um, but that was a very, very rough place to go. Uh, lots of ice, lots of snow. But these guys wanted to do that for a couple of weeks just set up their equipment and talk to people around the world. So I love talking to different countries. It's a lot of fun. And Lee, what's your favorite thing to do with radio? Uh, for the longest time, I was into something called QRP, which is a low, low power. I've heard different people define it as anything under five watts output. Uh, other people have um, heard it under 10, but I think it's, I think five is conventional wisdom. But basically, you know, the absolute lowest power what can you squeeze out of an antenna? Ideally, it would be one of my own making. So very low power, you know, battery uh, uh, battery input, not plugged into a wall, sitting on the end of my dock. You know, maybe the lake is my ground plane, whatever. And, you know, what can you do with just a couple of watts? How far can you get? And some of it is, you know, is the atmosphere going to smile on you right at that moment, you know, for radio conditions or whatever. And I do remember... I think I was on, I think I was on one watt as the battery on my FT817 was dying. And that's a very popular QRP uh, radio from days gone by. And I remember having a little bit of a conversation with a fella in Ireland. And I thought, you know, this is pretty cool because I'm in upstate New York and I'm on less than a watt getting to, getting to Ireland. That was pretty neat. So used to be big into the QRP thing. Um, you know, probably these days, what consumes my time the most, I'm more of a listener these days than I am a, a talker, but going through all kinds of different SDRs and just grabbing the most bizarre signals and seeing if I can figure out what they are. Um, you wanna, you know, that, that's kind of where I'm at these days, mostly. Okay. You want to back up and describe SDR, kind of what's, what's the equipment and what's the software used to do that decoding? Uh, yeah, very good. Uh, Software-defined radio where you've got a, uh, a box, a black box, a white box, whatever, whatever color the box is. But the box gets its uh, capabilities and performance characteristics based on the software that's running it. Um, you know, in Wi-Fi nowadays, we have software-defined radios that can do different bands and such. But... Uh, or be a scanner radio, or be a this, or be a that, kind of the same thing. Um, so SDR Sharp is a very popular one, probably the mainstream one, and there are there are others. But um, you know, you can take that piece of hardware, configure it to do uh, whatever the software allows it to do, and it's really if you got the right hardware that you're controlling with the right software you can pick signals up out of uh, what I call the dirt, the noise floor. And you can take two signals that are right on top of each other, seemingly undiscernible and separate them out using filters and offsets and all of that. And, you know, examine what each one is. And it's, it's just all very uh, fascinating in a, 
very geeky way, I guess you could say. But, you know, to answer your question, that's what SDR is, software-defined radio. We had one uh, deep dive it, uh, a couple of years ago at WLPC, which had a software-defined radio, and the guy we brought in to teach it actually coded it to decode Wi-Fi. So it's not just simple FM or AM or sideband, but you can make an SDR. I mean, basically that's what access points doing. It's listening to the digital and, and converting it back. If I'm not mistaken, uh, that was not just a guy that came in. He was a genius. I oh, remember. Yeah, he, was, he was definitely a genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was a PhD or something. And, uh, I don't remember where he was from South America somewhere, but I just remember, you know, maybe being 20 minutes into that session thinking, okay, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to be here because this guy is just phenomenal. Yeah, he He's was. a force in nature. Yes. He's <laughs> from Germany. I, I actually flew to Ireland because he was, he was at Trinity College Dublin working on his PhD. And, and that was, it was doing that same Wi-Fi work with SDRs and went to see if he would be willing to come. And he was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll come do that. So it was, it was fantastic. What frequencies, I guess this is kind of a broad question. One, in ham radio, you refer to frequencies differently than we do in Wi-Fi by their actual size rather than, than the frequency or, or back and forth. But which frequencies do you use in ham and which are the same as that we use in Wi-Fi? In Wi-Fi, we think of microwave and you can do microwave communication with amateur radio. In fact, amateur radio band kind of shares the uh, 2.4 gigahertz band, really, uh, to a degree. Ham operators shouldn't uh, upset anyone on 2.4 because there's a lot of interference on 2.4 anyway, isn't there? But a lot of the amateur radio communication that, that I do is what we call the HF bands, high frequency bands. And that would range from what we call 160 meters or the 160 meter band. That's about 1.8 megahertz. And it goes up through the 80, the 40, the 20. Uh, I'm going to miss a few here. Um, 30, I've got to think of the work bands here. Lee might want to help me out. 17, 12, 10 meter bands. And so again, they call it the meter bands because that's the approximate wavelength of a, of a full-sized antenna. If you were to put up a dipole from end to end, that would be like a, a one wavelength in those frequencies in meters. So just to, then, to give that um, a relationship to Wi-Fi, we would be calling the two, four gigahertz Wi-Fi. Oh yeah, it's the 12 centimeter band. That's approximately what yeah. it would be. Yes, yes. Um, but the thing about the HF bands is that's where you get the long distance communication. And we do that a lot by, against the technology, a little different. Uh, you, what you call you, you skip or you bounce your signals off the ionosphere. And we're about right now moving. There's a whole lot of conversation there, uh, Keith, but we're in the midst of the, what they call the 11 year sunspot cycle. It's cycle 25 and the cycle went, um, goes up and down and we're moving up to the height of more sunspots on the face of the sun. And what that does, that uh, causes our ionosphere to become more electrically charged and allows our signals to bounce off, if you will, better than, than just going through the atmosphere. So um, conditions are getting better for the higher frequencies and uh, lots of stations are coming out. So that's uh, one thing that many of us who are amateur radio operators who love to work DX, we're um, kind of licking our chops right now because we know the bands are getting better and conditions are getting better too. And about another year and a half, it's going to be the height of the sunspot cycle. So we're looking forward to that. 
to to go back on something Lee had said, and Lee, you can probably address this. You you were proud that you went QPR, low power, and you only had a watt. Compare that to your access points when you configure them for your campus. The typical, uh, you know, indoor AP carpeted space, you're, you know, well under 20 milliwatts. You know. And and just just to define that, 20 thousandths of one watt. Yes, sir. But you're and you're also at you know higher frequencies, much higher frequencies, in the 2.4 or 5 or now 6 gig. So you got uh, low power you know, high frequencies, but all of that combines to make sure that you don't go very far. The whole idea is, you know, capacity and small cells. That's the Wi-Fi charge generally. There are exceptions to that, but that's generally when you talk about carpeted spaces, what you're after. In the radio world, you know, go down. I don't know if Glenn named the actual frequencies, but you're, you know, 30 megahertz and below typically in what we call HF. And you know, I referenced using one watt or less on battery power and, and being smitten with what I was able to achieve. You've got ham radio stations where, you know, you'll hear in the magazines, full legal limit. And, you know, somebody in an ad saying, I got a kilowatt bragging about their output power. And, you know, you got these flamethrower antennas on these massive towers out in the big backyard for people that can both afford it and have the land to do all of that. So, you know, the it, it is a bit of a dichotomy from both the frequency and the output power perspective, you know, wife, and, and what you're trying to achieve even long distances on ham versus very short distances on Wi-Fi. But trying to answer your question, but all of that, and the, the other half of my brain is saying, yes, but the principles are all the same. You know, even though we're, even though we're talking about two different applications, the science underneath it all are the same on both sides of that line. And so, uh, Glenn, can you define the term pileup from your DX space in Wi-Fi terms? A pileup. Okay. So you have a station that everyone wants to work or talk to, right? A good example was the Bouvet Island de-expedition. And a pileup basically means everybody tries to get on the same frequency. So there's a process here. In FTA, we call it fox and hound. And so that means this transmitting station will be on one frequency and they will listen up the band to uh, other frequencies. And the same thing, whether it's Morse code or single size band phone, whatever, that person will be on one frequency and there will be a pileup, but not on that frequency. They say, no, move up five, move up 10 kilohertz. And that will allow them to then pick that station as opposed to everyone um, uh, listening to there, but you can turn tune your band, uh, your radio, and even if you don't have a ham radio license, you can get a shortwave um, radio receiver and listen to the bands, and you will you will hear a pileup. It'll just be a ton of communication on a very small limited frequency, and uh, so that's usually what we call a pileup when there's a a rare DX station out there, and everybody in the world is trying to work them. And what do you call a pileup on Wi-Fi? Uh, <laughs> pile up on Wi-Fi. Uh, Thirty or more stations trying to use voice over IP on the same AP, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we, but we have a protocol. You know, they all back off mm -hmm. and have a random yep. backoff timer to get back in. Uh, I guess if there was a, a, a protocol, you could also use something like that in a pileup on DX. If everyone in the world followed that same backoff algorithm, I'm guessing you'd have to have a really, really big random number to make that work. <laughs> that is correct. And so the random number is people try to take their turn. 
And uh, there are some people who actually do take their turn and others are kind of selfish and they think they want everyone to hear them. So it would be nice if they actually worked in ham radio as it should, as it does in Wi-Fi. Well, I appreciate your time for both of you helping us uh, talk a little bit about ham radio. If someone wanted to find you, Glenn, where would they track you down? And, and I'm guessing you wouldn't mind being an Elmer to help someone else. I'd be more than happy, Keith. My email address, you can get me there, grc405 at gmail.com. I'm also on a, a website called qrz.com, or as we say in amateur radio lingo, qrz.com. And you can look up my call sign. My call sign is N4GRC, November 4, Golf Romeo Charlie. You can look me up there and it'll actually bring up my email and gives a little bit about my uh, amateur radio communication. And so that's another way that you could look me up. Thanks. And Lee, how would someone find you? Well, on the QRZ uh, resource that Glenn mentioned, again, I am KI2K. Um, you, know, you can go about finding me there on Twitter. Uh, I'm at WiredNot. I uh, also have a blog, uh, wirednot.wordpress.com. And there's enough of my emails out there um, scattered around there where you can find me. I'm all over the internet from different projects in the past. So you won't have you won't have much trouble finding me if you search. Well, thanks again for your time. And if anyone has any questions, I'm sure either of these two would be glad to to help you. Again, this has been another podcast of Heavy Wireless. It's part of the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Thanks for your time.